there was a, a Lancet Commission report that came out in 2020 that looked at burden of dementia and tried to estimate what proportion of dementia is preventable. They estimated that 40% of dementia is preventable with modifiable factors. I would argue that they missed some things. And if they'd used more complex statistical approaches and included some other risk factors, it's probably more than 50%. I would guess that the majority of dementia is preventable. I'm Doug Bobes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please, sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Dr. Tommy Wood. Tommy is a neuroscientist who has coached world-class athletes in a dozen sports. He received his undergraduate degree in biochemistry from the University of Cambridge and his medical degree from the University of Oxford. And he also has his PhD in physiology and neuroscience. Tommy is currently a research assistant professor of pediatrics at the University of Washington, where his research interests includes identifying modifiable factors that contribute to brain health and cognitive function across the lifespan and more. Today on the podcast, we discuss what causes cognitive decline and what you can do to reduce your risk of dementia and Alzheimer's. We also get into which physical activities and dietary patterns are best for improving cognitive function and limiting cognitive decline. Tommy shares why dancing and certain activities are so powerful for stimulating the brain. And we also discuss how to reverse chronic stress and cognitive impairment, the controllable risk factors for dementia and Alzheimer's, and so much more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Dr. Tommy Wood to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Tommy, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Doug. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here with you. Likewise, I'm excited to have you on. And I know we're going to be spending a good bit of our time talking about cognition, cognitive decline, and what we can do to improve cognitive function. But I think a good place to start is what is cognitive decline and how is it different from things like burnout, maybe even something like depression or lack of sleep that you know impact our brain's ability to think clearly? So cognitive decline is a very broad term and depending on and people use it use it differently. In the medical sphere, cognitive decline, probably we know that as you get older, so say that there are these nice graphs or studies where they've looked at people's cognitive function over time. And basically your cognitive function on average in the population compared to people like you, so similar socioeconomic status, similar education level, your Cognitive function probably peaks in your 20s, and then it's this sort of linear decrease in cognitive function in most functions of the brain, executive function, working memory, things like that. Some things stay pretty stable, one being historical memory, like you always remember the, the good old days, and that's probably because those memories are, are sort of moved from the areas of the brain that are susceptible to changes over time, to, and they kind of like spread around the rest of the brain, so they're kind of more stable those specific types of memories. But essentially, as you get older, your cognitive function decreases. And there's multiple ways that we can change that trajectory. But in reality, right now, we can't prevent that, right? We can't prevent or slow aging, just like even if you go and lift weights to the gym three times a week, you're still going to get weaker as you get older, you can change that trajectory, but you can't prevent it entirely. So that's kind of, we know that that's relatively normal. In the sort of medical 
sphere, you might get to a point where you have something you can diagnose called mild cognitive impairment, which is essentially a pre-Alzheimer's stage. So kind of like like we have pre-diabetes before you get type 2 diabetes, and this is kind of the, the cognitive function version. And then, you know, eventually you can get down into to frank dementia, which again, it's diagnostic. You can do some tests and you usually want to rule out some things and then you can say, well, this person has, has dementia. And those are two kind of different trajectories. Some people may just, you know, their cognitive function just sl- slowly decreases over time, but they never really get to a point where it's holding them back. You know, it's not affecting their quality of life versus those who sort of take the other trajectory where it's a more rapid decline and then they end up with with dementia for however long before before they pass. How is this different from things like burnout and depression? It may not necessarily be that different. Some of these processes are very highly intertwined. So burnout is a pretty new thing, right? We've probably only been talking about burnout for the last, you know, five to ten years, maybe, if that. However, we know that chronic stress is associated with increased risk of, of Alzheimer's disease or, or dementia. And that's probably uh, related to, you know, overactivation of stress hormones. There are uh, inflammatory pathways that get activated when we're chronically stressed in various different ways. And those can contribute to cognitive decline. We also know that depression is a, a risk factor for later dementia. And there are multiple uh, reasons for that as well. It could be that they have sort of common underlying pathologies. So there are some uh, subsets of depression that we know have sort of an inflammatory or a component and that can also be a component of a risk factor for alzheimer's disease or it could be that because you're depressed you may change how you interact with the world and we know that the way that you interact with the world affects your your cognitive function so one could could lead to the other so disentangling in it is kind of tricky early on if you say notice that you have or that you have some change in your in your cognitive function there are probably two, there's a simple way to, to distinguish between what's sort of like a short term, say sleep deprivation versus what's maybe the sort of, for want of a better word, pathological decrease in cognitive function that may end up in dementia. And when you're sleep deprived or stressed and you have trouble remembering something, it's usually a problem with retrieval. You have that memory. It's just harder to get it. Like, you know, it's in there. Whereas often people, as they end up with dementia, they never make that memory in the first place. There's a problem with encoding. So it's a difference between was that memory stored in the first place versus is that memory stored, but it's just trickier for for me to get it. And then that latter one, you know, if we improve things like sleep or stress mitigation or, or something, we can, that's easy to improve. Whereas once you're sort of deep down the the pathway of, of not being able to encode memories in the first place, for most people, it's probably too late. Wow, that was so much information. And it's like, I'm really glad that you kind of laid it out in that way. And I think that, so let's just say that we can accept the fact that cognitive decline in general is inevitable and we can't necessarily prevent that. But what we can prevent is mild cognitive impairment. We can try to prevent things like Alzheimer's and dementia. I know you mentioned that chronic stress is something that can lead to those things. Is there anything else that people can do to prevent themselves from reaching that point? Absolutely. There was a, a Lancet Commission report that came out in 2020 that looked at burden of dementia and tried to estimate what proportion of dementia is preventable. They estimated that 40% of dementia is preventable with modifiable factors. I would argue 
that they missed some things. And if they'd used more complex statistical approaches and included some other risk factors, it's probably more than 50%. I would guess that the majority of dementia is preventable. So things that are identified uh, are things like diet quality, body composition, physical activity. They didn't include sleep, but sleep is obviously important. Education level is a risk factor. And maybe we can get more into cognitive demands, like how much you actually stimulate your brain, I think is one of the most important risk factors. And there's a whole bunch of uh, evidence for that. And related to that, if we lose a sense, then that decreases inputs to the brain. And that also is associated with increased uh, risk of dementia. So if you lose your hearing, you have an increased risk of dementia, but that's reversed if you get a hearing aid. And if you lose your sight, so you have cataracts, that's associated with increased risk of dementia, but it's reversible if you get cataract surgery. There are multiple points along this path where we can you know, identify a specific risk factor in a, in a specific person and say, hey, here's, here's you know, some low-hanging low fruit, something that we can intervene with. One major thing that they didn't include in this uh, Lancet Commission report, but I think is very important, is nutrient status, particularly related to B vitamins and omega-3s. So there's some very nice work showing that if you measure somebody's homocysteine level, which is kind of a, a marker for needing certain B vitamins, and then you intervene, you give them a, in a randomized control trial, you give them these B vitamins and you lower their homocysteine, then you can slow their rate of brain atrophy and, and cognitive decline. You can improve their cognitive function just by identifying a very common nutrient deficiency. And that interacts with omega-3 status. So making sure that those people also either supplement with with long-chain omega-3 fatty acids or eat, eat enough uh, fish. That's an option too. You know, so any of those can be important depending on the individual. And I think one of the reasons why we think this is so complicated is because I just listed 10 different risk factors. And if you do a, a randomized controlled trial and you take people at risk and you only do one thing, you may not see a big effect because actually it could be the other nine things that were important for the majority of the people uh, in the trial. So it's a it's a moving target. There's multiple things that are important. But I think we have enough information to say that the majority of dementia is probably preventable if we address those various risk factors when they're relevant to individual people. I want to go into diet quality for a second because you, you touched on that and you also mentioned the importance of making sure that your B vitamin levels are optimized as well as your omega-3s. Like If you were to just for the average person, look at what a dietary pattern should look like to help prevent mild cognitive impairment and dementia like over the long term. Like, What types of foods do you think should be regularly included? So one interesting thing about diet to me is that I've, I've seen people thrive and do really well on a wide variety of diets, right? So I don't have hard and fast rules. There are some things that I think are important. One is nutrient density, like just are you getting B vitamins, omega-3s, minerals, obviously other nutrients, are you getting adequate protein? I certainly think that's important, especially as it relates to like body composition and physical function and how that affects the brain. And so that generally looks like a minimally processed diet. And so you're eating food that looks like it was just grown or it just came from the, the fish or the animal that, that it came from. That, that essentially makes up the bulk of what I would recommend for a diet. Plus, you know, in individuals, if you're worried about your risk, there's some simple testing you can do. You can test your omega-3 status. You can test your homocysteine. Um, you can test your iron status, your vitamin D status. These are all important, but you can get those tests. Most doctors should probably do those tests. And then you can tweak your diet based on that. We know that one important risk factor is your blood sugar regulation. 
So there was a, a study done in the UK where they looked at different levels of people's blood sugar regulation. So people who had normal blood sugar, people who, were, who had pre-diabetes, and people who had type 2 diabetes. And that's based on either a fasting blood sugar test or an HbA1c, which is sort of like a, a long-term blood sugar metric. And the worse your blood sugar regulation, so as you went from normal to pre-diabetes to type 2 diabetes, the faster the brain atrophied and the faster people's cognitive decline decreased. So knowing how good your blood sugar is regulated is, is important. And things that sort of relate to that, you know, risk factors for poor blood sugar control in terms of diet are ultra-processed, kind of heavily modernized, nutrient-poor foods, which is unfortunately the majority of what most people eat. But, you know, so that that's another thing that people can measure. And if they're going moving in the wrong direction, then those sort of those foods that are basically just a combination of highly processed fats and highly processed carbohydrates, I think those are contributing to some of the problems. So eliminating those as much as possible, which is, again, easier for some people than others. But that's something that I think is important. And then staying on this theme and looking at different types of foods that people should eat along with the nutrient profiles of these foods. Obviously, when it comes to omega-3s, people their minds instantly go to things like fish and seafood. Like, What types of foods tend to be high other than seafood in omega-3s? And then what types of foods are high in things like B vitamins, iron, vitamin D, and so on? Yeah. So in general, specifically for the brain in, in this context, the long-chain omega-3 DHA is the, the most important. There's another one called EPA, and you get those are the two that you tend to get from fish oil. And the EPA is probably important for maintaining your cardiovascular and vascular health, which is also important for the brain. Uh, but DHA is specifically important because it goes into the membranes of neurons and it's needed to, so that like, neurons can talk to each other in the brain, in the synapse, where that sort of connections are made. And you're right that fish, fish oil, those are probably the best sources. You can get the same from things like krill, or if you're plant-based, then there's algal oils that that can have uh, that have have those as well. So that's you know any of those is fine. And you know in reality, if you eat fish once or twice a week, you know probably avoid making it always you know fish that are at the top of the food chain because we know they have a higher mercury content. So smaller fish like sardines and things like that are great i mean salmon is also good anything in that realm just don't make it all like whale and swordfish and then when you're talking about iron b vitamins in reality meat and organ meats are probably your best sources of those certainly there's iron in some plants there's b vitamins in some plants but b12 so say if you're somebody who doesn't eat animal foods then i think every good plant-based proponent i know recommends a b12 supplement you just you just have to take it. You can't get a good quality B12 from the diet in the, in the amounts that you need it. And B12 is a significant uh, risk factor for, for Alzheimer's disease. And then uh, vitamin D, usually when we get it from the diet now, it's because it's fortified. So it's added to things like milk and, and some other food. So you might be getting it because it's fortified. That's fine. But equally, you know, if you can get it from going out in the sun, I would say that's maybe better because there's a whole bunch of other things that are important or the health benefits from doing that. But yeah, that's where might, you might get vitamin D. I love that. I love how you provided the insights on like both like where you could potentially get it from like animal foods and then like what to do if you're, you know, plant-based or vegan and you don't eat animal products. And staying on the theme of like wellness and fitness, what role does like body fat percentage play in risk for cognitive impairment and dementia and Alzheimer's? 
We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second, but first wanted to give a quick shout out to this episode's sponsor, Just Thrive. I have covered the topic of gut health extensively on the show and why it is so important to have a healthy microbiome. 80 to 90% of Americans suffer from some type of gut issue and 70 to 80% of your immune system is in the gut. And while cleaning up your diet and managing your stress should be at the foundation of addressing your gut health, a probiotic can certainly be very beneficial. When buying a probiotic, you want to be sure that you get one that actually works and delivers on their promises. Research shows that 99.9% of them die in your stomach acid before they reach your gut. That's where Just Thrive Probiotic stands out from the crowd. Their proprietary strains have been third-party clinically tested and proven to arrive 100% alive in your gut, unlike other probiotics that die on the way. But that's not all. Their probiotics have more clinical research than any other products on the market and are proven to work. So if you are tired of struggling with gut issues like gas, bloating, and indigestion, look no further than Just Thrive Probiotics. So for a limited time, you can get 20% off your first 90-day bottle of Just Thrive Probiotic. So visit JustThriveHealth.com and use promo code Doug to get 20% off. Again, it's JustThriveHealth.com and use promo code Doug to get 20% off. Now back to the show. This is fairly tricky. The body fat is actually very good for you in, in a number of ways, specifically in the modern environment. But there are scenarios where it can be detrimental. And I think that whenever we talk about body fat, we have to do the first thing we have to do is we have to dissociate the physiologic effects of body fat from any comment on an individual's body composition. This is there is no value judgment on anybody's body composition, and you right. But we can talk about the physiology of body fat. And so when you pass a certain well, first let's talk about the protective effects. Your your fat is your main energy buffer, and we live in an environment that promotes being in a hypercaloric state for a number of reasons, both the type of food and then physical activity and a whole bunch of other things. So if you are eating more energy than your body requires, you need to put that somewhere. And putting it in body fat is a very safe thing to do. It's actually really good for you because you don't want that energy circulating around the body. It can cause all kinds of problems. And that's what happens in, say, late type 2 diabetes. You essentially have more energy floating around your bloodstream than you want. And that's as glucose, that's as fat, and then it goes into organs and does things you don't want it to do. So storing excess energy as body fat is actually really important. However, you get to a point, and this point is different from person to person, where essentially your stores are full. And then what I just mentioned can happen. And as those stores get filled up, they sort of increase inflammation, you get increased blood sugar, uh, you can have increased uh, fats or free fatty acids floating around that can affect a number of processes. So there is an association between excess adiposity and increased cognitive decline. However, I think it's probably a bit more complicated than that, because you can mitigate a number of those effects. So say if you're regularly performing physical activity or exercise, then that sort of mitigates a whole bunch of that. Or if you have more uh, muscle tissue and you're moving that muscle and you create a sink for, say, glucose and energy that's that's uh, in the bloodstream, then that can also offset a lot of those issues. So the best example is uh, sumo wrestlers who have a lot of fat mass, but they also have a lot of muscle mass and they're also very active. And if you look at their metabolic health, it's actually pretty good. So it doesn't have to be the case that sort of excess fat tissue is detrimental. And there are a lot of if you if you fix a whole bunch of other things related to, say, nutrient density and 
uh, sleep and physical activity, then it's something that I worry about less. And in reality, if you know, I'm trying to recommend to people, like, what's the thing that you can do to sort of improve your long-term cognitive function, it's actually very difficult to focus on, say, fat loss. Or people will focus on weight loss, and then you lose weight. And what happens is you lose a bunch of muscle tissue as well. And then there's some problems with that. So I usually recommend adding muscle and adding physical activity is probably your best way to attack that. And then you don't have to think about your weight or anything else. You know you're doing something beneficial, but you're adding on additional buffer and resilience to the system, but you're not having to make sort of value judgments about people's weight or uh, fat tissue. Right. Yeah, so it seems like what you're telling people to do is just to really focus on exercising and moving your body and getting strong to help mitigate, you know, some of the risk factors that might come from having excess body fat. And we've heard a lot that, you know, exercise is good for the brain. It fuels your brain. It does all this stuff. From a neuroscience perspective, like why? Like why is exercise so beneficial for our brain and um, helping with cognitive decline? And why specifically strength training? One of the things that I find so interesting about exercise is that it's it's like the one thing that everybody can agree on, right? Yeah. Like, like yeah. we can argue about diets, so we can argue about a whole bunch of other things, but everybody can agree that physical activity is good for you. But we don't really know how it works. Like we know some of the mechanisms, but every month there's a new paper in a fancy journal that says, hey, we discovered this new molecule that gets released when you exercise and here are all the amazing things that it does. So it's just interesting to me that I can tell you a whole bunch of stuff that I know about why physical activity is important, but maybe there are a whole bunch of things that we just haven't discovered yet. And what you see when you look across different life stages and different interventions, the things that are most likely to be impactful are the things that do a whole bunch of stuff at the same time in a coordinated manner. And physical activity is one of them. It's one of the reasons why, you know, like one pill for one receptor is probably not going to be the thing that prevents or treats Alzheimer's disease. You, you need something that comes at it from multiple directions. And physical activity is one of them. So there are like local effects and then systemic effects. Locally, like I mentioned, your your skeletal muscle, you know, the muscles on the outside of your body, they're your main glucose sink. So about 75% of glucose goes into your muscles. And a lot of that just related to how much they get moved during the day. So again, in an environment where essentially predisposes to, to causing prediabetes or type diabetes, moving, having more muscle and moving it creates this, creates this sink, this buffer for excess blood sugar. Uh, so that, that's one part. Then we also know that when you move, you release a whole bunch of stuff, which they call myokines, and they can do various things. So one myokine is brain-derived neurotrophic factor. So this is a, a protein that goes up to the brain and it supports neuronal health and function. But then you can also release some factors that decrease inflammation. And there are a whole bunch of other factors that are, that are being discovered all the time that get released and they can affect, affect various organs around the body. We also know that just moving in a coordinated way is an important stimulus for the brain. So you have this direct neuromuscular stimulus. So learning these skills, learning these coordinated movements, they are directly stimulating the brain to create new connections. So you have these like local and, and systemic effects. Strength training in particular, there've been a, a few randomized control trials where they've taken sort of older individuals, like there's one, the, the SMART trial took people in their 70s, and they randomized them to either do uh, strength training or like a cognitive training, like an online brain training game, or a combination of both or neither. So you had like four groups. And those who did the strength training, and it was something that I think almost anybody can do. It was like twice a week, six exercises, three sets of eight, 
something like machines in the gym. Like really, 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 really simple. Any gym will allow you to do this. And that was associated with improvements in the structure of the white matter, which is this part of the brain that's responsible for fast connections. And then also it was associated with improved cognitive function. So a really doable amount of resistance training in individuals in their 70s is significantly improving cognitive function. That's probably because it's improving certain aspects of brain structure. So lots of different ways that lifting or exercise in general can beneficially affect the brain. And so breaking that down a little bit, like what is like a good benchmark for people? Like, is there certain types of exercise or the way you would design a program like throughout the course of a week that would give people the best bang for the buck? Like when I think of, I've been a trainer for 12 years. And when I think of like how to help the brain, my first thought is always like, well, let's work on like balance stuff. But what I'm hearing you say is it's, it's much more than that. It's probably much more simpler than that. So if you could break that down, I think people would appreciate that. Yeah, sure. So the best way to think about it is what kinds of physical activity have we you know, shown improve cognitive function or, or brain structure in the target demographic? So these are probably people in their 50s, 60s, 70s. And I think this is important because usually we're told this story that hey, your brain just gets worse over time and there's nothing you can do about it, right? Like once you get into your 60s and 70s, mm-hmm. like, you know, it's too late. You know, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, all that kind of stuff. And it's just it's just not true. So I think the first study to really show that you can increase the size of various parts of the brain, particularly those related to cognitive function that you lose in dementia. So the hippocampus, which is an area of the brain important for mem- memory. The intervention was 40 minutes of brisk walking, three times a week. And they did this for, for a year. And they saw significant increases in the hippocampus in indiv- individuals in their 60s. So if you're then translating this into a program, you're talking, you know, what we might now call zone two, because that's become uh, really popular recently, but basically, some kind of low level aerobic activity for somewhere between one and two hours per week. So in this study, they, it was three times 40 minutes. So I think that's kind of that kind of lays the foundation. Then on top of that, you might add say two sessions of resistance training. And again, what's the structure? It's it's probably half an hour to forty five minutes each time, and you're doing you know something like six to eight different exercises. You know traditional bodybuilding structure, three sets of eight, something like that, eight to twelve. I think that's something that's doable, and you know you're, you're going to increase muscle size and strength is going to come is going to come with that then there is an additional benefit from coordinative exercise. So kind of you, you talked about balance, and I think that is important. There was one meta-analysis that looked at all the different types of sort of exercise, and they found that exercise that had this coordination component had a greater benefit than aerobic or, or strength training. Others have, have found, you know, basically whatever you do, if you do a little bit more of it, you're going to get some benefit. So I don't think the rules are like really hard, but things that require you to react to the environment are probably going to be important. So it involve balance, so maybe it's yoga, a slacklining, skateboarding, right? Something like that. Probably the best studied intervention or exercise is dancing. And several studies have shown both improvements in brain structure and cognitive function with dancing. And there's probably a lot, you know, there's a, a motor component, there's a social component, there's a music component, right? All these things are, are really beneficial for the brain. So, you know, maybe you don't have to do 40 minutes of brisk walking, maybe you go to a dance class instead. That would be great. And then another sort of broad area related to that are like ball sports. So if people are searching in PubMed, they might look for this phrase, open skill 
sports or activities compared to closed skills. So open skill is badminton, table tennis, right? You're having to react to the environment versus closed skills, which is like circuit training or sitting on a stationary bike. And the open skill activities seem to improve or have a greater benefit for cognitive function, even if the sort of how difficult they are physically is the same. And that's probably because there's this additional stimulus of having to react to the environment. So, you know, if you take two or three sessions per week where you're doing some kind of aerobic activity, if you can add a skill component, right? So it's dancing rather than brisk walking, that's great. But brisk walking, we also know is beneficial. A couple of sessions of resistance training. And again, probably needs to be half an hour to 45 minutes. And then I think there's additional benefit from, you know, occasionally doing something really intense for a short period of time. There are a lot of things that are released like lactate is really great for the brain. So then... Either the things that you're doing could have a high intensity component, right? Maybe you uh, you do some some brisk walking, and then right at the end, you you know you sort of go at your maximum speed, whatever that is, for a short period of time. Or you can add on some kind of high intensity thing, maybe once a week. I think that covers that really covers most of it. Yeah, that's so interesting to me, specifically when you brought up something like dancing or even some of these skill sports. Do you think the the benefit that comes from something like dancing? I mean, because typically a lot of people maybe they haven't properly learned how to dance before is that they're doing something that they're not good at and they're persevering despite the fact that they're not so great at that specific activity? Yes, that is exactly why it's beneficial. If you learn, learning new skills provides this novel stimulus to the brain, which which generates new connections and it, it sort of prevents cognitive decline we have several studies that that show that but very specifically it has to be something that you're not good at because once you're good at it it becomes habit it becomes automatic and it's no longer the same stimulus so a nice example of this is uh, there was a study that looked at the brains of musicians compared to non-musicians and they use this machine learning algorithm that you apply to an mri scan of the brain they've now used this algorithm in dozens of studies it's called brain age it basically says if you take an MRI scan on the brain, you put it into the algorithm, you, you ask the algorithm, how old does this brain look? And this is related to, if anybody's heard of biological age versus chronological age. So you can sort of measure aspects of your biology and say, how old does this person look biologically relative to how, you know, how many birthdays they've had, which is their chronological age. And so this is something that people are focusing a lot now in sort of the anti-aging sphere. But brain age, when they looked at brain age in musicians they found that musicians compared to non-musicians had younger looking brains at the same age chronologically but what was most interesting was that those who were amateur musicians had an even greater benefit than those who were professional musicians so the youngest brains were in amateur musicians and the theory that that got put forth by the the people who did the study was that it's harder for them if you're an amateur right you're you're not an expert it requires more intentionality more focus you know you have to really work uh, to improve, and you're still on that upward trajectory, and then then it has a a greater benefit for the brain. So yes, doing things that you're bad at and learning new skills is really critical for sort of maintaining long term cognitive function. So fascinating. I'm like blown away, and I'm like half tempted to sign up for like some sort of dance or or music class. How can somebody gauge whether they're like? actually good at something like you mentioned that like once it, you become good at something that it becomes now it's become a habit not a new skill like how does somebody know when they've crossed that line it's probably related to, to depending on the skill there are sort of formal tests that you could do but it, but sort of more broadly it's related to how much conscious effort is required to do the thing 
that you're doing, right? So when you learn how to drive, it requires all of your inputs at all times to like figure out what's going on around you and controlling the car. But then, you know, five, 10 years later, you don't think about any of it, right? It doesn't require any additional focus. It happens automatically. That's really the difference. So if you're doing something, so say you're, you're learning a language and there is there's some evidence that people who are bilingual or learn languages even later in life are protected against cognitive decline. There's, it's the difference between, you know, somebody speaking to you and you having to like think through the response in advance, which is still the case when some of the languages that I speak, you know, it, it requires conscious thought to respond versus, you know, an automatic response because, you know, like you and I are speaking English, like I don't have to think about it. But if you and I were speaking Norwegian, it would take me a bit of time to kind of think through my response. So that's the difference. It's like what conscious effort is required to do the thing that you're trying to do. Conscious effort. I love that. I think that's definitely a good way for people to know. It's like, all right, is this thing becoming easy to do or do I have to think about it more in order to get that thing done? And staying on this topic, I want to get into like cognitive and brain stimulation, which we we kind of hinted at like earlier in our conversation. And I feel like a lot of people after they're done school, they don't they stop like learning stuff. They stop doing things to stimulate their brain other than what they're doing in their day-to-day life. Like my grandparents, for instance, they've done like things like Sudoku or they'll play, my grandmother plays bridge or they'll do like puzzles to like stimulate their brain. Is that effective or are there better ways to do that? Your point about how like the, tra- the trajectory of, of learning in modern society, I think parallels exactly how cognitive function works in society over time, right? I said right at the beginning that your cognitive function peaks in your 20s. That's also when formal education ends right so you you basically for the first you know depending on who you are somewhere between 16 and 20 something years of your life like your job is to learn all right it's it's a major part of what you're doing every day and then at the end of that that's essentially the peak of your cognitive function is the end of that formal learning period and you can extend that with you know longer education or you know you can certainly augment that with languages and physical activity and like movement skills like we've talked about but then you basically stop learning and you just go to work and you do the same thing every day again and again and again and as that happens cognitive function declines over time so there's like this direct parallel between how much time we spend learning new skills and doing new things and then the function of the brain over time so i think a a contributor to that trajectory of, of brain function is just how we live our lives you get sort of hyper skilled in the job that you do. And that's probably good, right? If you want, if you're a surgeon, you want everything to be automatic and, you know, the best possible, very smooth, right? You don't want the surgeon to have to be thinking really carefully about each step because they've only done it twice, right? You want it to be habit. Mm. But then they've lost, or there's no longer a skill they're developing. It's no longer this direct stimulus to the brain because it's become habit. So at the end of the working life, there's several population studies now that suggest that the earlier you retire, the earlier you get cognitive decline or dementia. And that's probably because, you know, even though you know you might be doing the same things every day, the majority of our cognitive stimulus at a population level comes through our work. And then when you remove that stimulus, then cognitive function starts to starts to decline. So how you overcome that, I would, you know, there's some evidence for things like crosswords or Sudoku, but but I don't think they really provide that same stimulus in the same way that we talked about, like learning a language, learning a movement skill, right? It's something you can probably only do for like half an hour to an hour at a time, like constantly pushing 
the boundaries of what you're capable of. Like that's the kind of stimulus we're talking about. And then you need, you know, some period of sleep, rest and recovery, right, to allow the brain to adapt and, and make the new connections that, you, that you've stimulated with that process. So there are some online brain training tools that people can use that have some good, good evidence for them. So you can do some of these you know, puzzles and other things that, that can be beneficial. And so if that's something that people would like to do, you know, there is evidence for that. However, I think that there's probably going to be more benefit from some of these things that we've already talked about, like, and probably because there's multiple benefits that are coming at the same time. So if you're doing movement with a coordination component, right, you have the stimulus to the brain because of the coordination, but then you also have the benefits of the physical activity. Or if you're doing dancing, or if you're playing bridge, if you're playing bridge, there's a social component, and we know that social interaction and social support are really important for preventing dementia. And then also bridge is a more complex process than, than Sudoku, right? So it's a more of a stimulus and there's a social component. So trying to hit multiple things at the same time is probably going to be most beneficial. So a complex skill. And then if you can add, you know, physical activity or you can add uh, social uh, interaction on top, you know, that's probably going to be more beneficial than doing Sudoku at home by yourself. Yeah, so it seems that, like, let's just say it's a an older population, and and maybe somebody who has injuries and they can't move as effectively as they could when they were younger, and they can't play a, a skill sport, they can't go out. Maybe they're not able to, to dance. Maybe they have some knee issues or whatever. Like the best bang for their buck is going to be to play a game in a social setting or to pick up a new language where they're forcing their brain to really learn in an intense way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then obviously, there's still benefits from whatever physical activity they're capable of. And I think this is where, you know, in, in some scenarios, maybe people have significant arthritis or you know some other kind of physical limitation, then, you know, you can do things like blood flow restriction training, you can do things like electrical muscle stimulation. I think those will hopefully become more sort of accepted, because they're very safe, they allow you to get some of the benefits of activity with, with very low load and low intensity, but you're still, you know, releasing all these things, you're still moving the muscle tissue such that it becomes this glucose sink. So I think there are ways around physical limitations where you can still get some of the benefits of physical activity. But then for the cognitive function side, yes, any kind of Anything you can do that's skill-based, particularly in a social setting, is going to be beneficial. Gotcha. You know, you talked about like something that's really important for preventing, helping to like mitigate cognitive decline is blood sugar regulation. And you hear a lot, or you, you hear a lot that people will say one of the benefits of something like fasting is to help regulate like blood sugar and it can lead to things like autophagy. What are your thoughts on all of that? Do you think there's merit to fasting in regards to autophagy and blood sugar regulation? And, and can all of that help with uh, cognitive impairment? So, I think if you're in a scenario where you've spent a long period of time in a caloric surplus, and because of that, you now have some issues with blood sugar regulation, which is common. This, you know, this is probably what the majority of people experience in the US over time. Then the main benefit of fasting is that you're generating a caloric deficit that can maybe offload some of those negative effects of being in a surplus for a long period of time. Extended periods of fasting, so like three plus days, yes, are probably going to activate things like autophagy. However, I think we have enough data to suggest that aerobic exercise activates autophagy faster and more easily. So if you do 30 minutes of moderate aerobic exercise, that will activate autophagy in the same way as about three days of fasting. So wow. I don't think, you know, 
fasting is this thing where everybody's like, well, you have to fast to, to generate autophagy. That's not true. And actually, moderate amounts of physical activity will probably do something very similar. That doesn't mean that you can't do it through fasting or you shouldn't. But the story that you have to fast, I don't think is correct. I think that one of the main benefits of fasting is that if you're somebody who's been in a caloric surplus for a long period of time, you're creating a caloric deficit that may offset some of those negative effects of that. If this then results in improvements in blood sugar, I think that's that's great. So if you're you know doing periods of extended fasting and your blood sugar control improves, that's probably going to be a good thing. So if that's the way that you want to tackle that, great. And there are some studies that show that the effect of dysregulated blood sugar or types of diabetes specifically on uh, cognitive function, that those are also reversible. And I think that's the important thing is if we can show that if you improve this, cognitive function should improve, that makes it more likely that that somebody that it's worth doing it. And so there was a study where they looked at some some medications. These are dipeptid alpeptidase 4 inhibitors. Uh, they're sort of like an old style medication now for type 2 diabetes because now, because what they do is they prevent the breakdown of incretins like GLP-1, whereas now we have GLP-1 agonists like, uh, you know, Azempic and Monjaro and things like that, that do a similar job. But when they looked at these drugs in individuals, and so they took them for two years, and at the start, they looked at their blood sugar regulation, something called uh, MAGE, or mean amplitude of glycemic excursion. So it's like, how big are the spikes of blood sugar when they eat their meals? And they showed that the best predictor in this uh, study, the individual predictor of cognitive function was how much variability is in this person's blood sugar. Like how much does their blood sugar spike when they when they eat their meals? And the bigger the spikes and the more regular the, the big spikes, the worse the cognitive function. And then they looked at how much did that improve at the end of the, the trial. And the bigger the improvements in blood sugar regulation, the bigger the improvements in cognitive function in this trial. So if you can improve your blood sugar regulation, you have less spikes or fewer spikes, that seems to be associated with improvements in cognitive function. So however you do that, could be fasting, it could be diet, it could be exercise, it could be some combination of those things. Then I think there's enough evidence to say that's probably going to be associated with improvements in cognitive function. And so we just talked about like blood sugar and autophagy and, and, and stuff like that. I want to shift into one of the other major factors you said that contributes to dementia, Alzheimer's, and cognitive impairment, and that's chronic stress. And so many people right now, I think, are just beyond stressed because of just a variety of factors based on the research that you've read and in your own knowledge like what's the best way to reverse chronic stress <laughs> i think if i if we knew how to do that society would probably look very different and maybe i'd have a nobel prize um but <laughs> the in reality again it's going to be very individual f- from person to person and the, the way i think about it in this context is that if we're trying to build this this sort of structure of how things affect the brain and how we can prevent cognitive decline, have you know, I've sort of worked with others. So like we've talked a lot about cognitive stimulus. I wrote a paper on this with a, a colleague of mine, Dr. Josh Turkner, who's a neurologist. And we've sort of been putting this model of how do all these things come together. So we think that stimulating the brain is really important, but then to respond to that stimulus, uh, you need things like your blood vessels need to function. So you need good you know, cardiovascular health, and you need enough nutrients to build the cells and connections, right? We talked about B vitamins and and omega-3s, those are important. And then you also need some period of rest and recovery, because that's when actually those new connections are made. You know, as you know, with with athletes, you don't get stronger in the gym, you get stronger when you rest and recover afterwards, right? When When you respond to that stimulus by developing, you know, new robustness or new tissue, and the brain is essentially the same. So 
chronic stress essentially inhibits that recovery process, or that is one of the ways that it can do it. And that's through stress hormones like cortisol, adrenaline, noradrenaline, maybe the way, the balance of the uh, autonomic nervous system, right? The sympathetic kind of stress response versus the parasympathetic sort of rest and recovery response. All of these things are out of whack in chronic stress. And then you can also, the body changes the way that it responds to things like cortisol. You can become resistant to the effects of cortisol, which can be beneficial, but you lose that if you're sort of like constantly dumping cortisol into the, into the system. So all of these things can impair the way the brain would normally respond to a stimulus or you know, the sort of our day-to-day activities. And then how you mitigate that is probably going to be very different from person to person. A lot of people, so if you work with, you know, a lot of the sort of athletes and and people that, that I work with, they feel like exercise, you know, large amounts, large volumes of exercise are de-stressing. And, you know, maybe for some people that's the case, but for other people that may just be adding more stress into the system. So maybe they feel better, but in reality, they're not actually allowing their their bodies to recover fully. So then, you know, can you identify and remove the stressor in the first place? But that's probably the most important thing. Like, What is it that's causing chronic stress? And it's a simple answer, but it's not easy to do, right? Because it could be financial or work-related or family-related or all of the above. And you know, just removing yourself from that scenario isn't necessarily easy or, or even possible. So then, you know, you might think about things that are important for increasing resilience to stress. So sleep is important. Obviously, you know, physical activity up to a point uh, is important. Then you might think about uh, breath work, meditation, mindfulness all of these have been shown to both improve uh, brain structure in or be associated with improvements in brain structure there are some studies where people start doing it and then you see changes in brain structure other studies say people who do this regularly versus people who don't are this there are their brain structures different and they are so some evidence may just be that you know maybe different types of people do meditation regularly and their brains just look different but there are some studies that say if we implement these strategies do we start to see improvements? So any of these, again, based on the individual, what is it something that you can regularly create as a habit? There's something that you could do every day or you know, whenever you need it. So that could be breath work. It could be meditation. It could be mindfulness, uh, various aspects of yoga. All these things are, are possible and do seem to increase resilience to stress. But it's really going to be based on what's something that you can regularly do that's going to show benefit. Because if you just do it three or four times and then don't do it again, it probably wasn't the right thing for you. Right. And you're right. It definitely is like a multifaceted issue and approach when it comes to you know dealing and combating chronic stress. I want to talk about like, let's just say somebody has, you know, they've experienced cognitive decline and they've reached that point where they have some mild cognitive impairment. They're having, you know, memory loss and stuff like that. Would the the same preventable measures such as lifestyle, diet, exercise, work is ways to prevent that from getting worse and turning into something like dementia or Alzheimer's or maybe even potentially helping to mitigate those systems or would there be other methods to help treat that? So it's essentially the same stuff. And a lot of the studies that I've mentioned, so say some of the studies around lowering homocysteine or you know, uh, giving people nutrients or omega-3s, they're in individuals who already have mild cognitive impairment or mild cognitive impairment or are at very high risk of it. And you can see some benefits in terms of brain structure and cognitive function. So you know, there are a few trials that suggest that even when you're in mild cognitive impairment, you can reverse that process so that you could improve brain function such that you're no longer technically cognitively impaired. We're kind of still right at the beginning of that. 
But in reality, it seems that those same things are important. So if you identify somebody with high homocysteine or, you know, they're not physically active and you can add physical activity or, you know, there's some chronic stress component and you can add, you know, some kind of meditation or, or other related practice, you know, there's both some small studies and then also a lot of anecdote that says you can see significant improvements uh, in cognitive function. So the a charity based in the in the UK called Food for the Brain that I do some work with on their a scientific advisory board and they have this online system where you can measure your cognitive function and then you can also look at all these risk factors that we've talked about so you can look at things related to sleep and diet and physical activity and then you can identify well, where's my sort of greatest risk you know, where's the thing where I'm not doing maybe what could be beneficial and could I add that in and then there's already been some some pretty impressive sort of case stories where people have have used this system employed some new uh, interventions that have seen dramatic improvements in their or their family members cognitive function and you know this is not a large randomized controlled trial but even despite that if your cognitive function has improved even if it was the placebo effect that's great i think you should take it because you know there's so much quality of life that's related to that so i think we're still developing the evidence that this is possible but everything that i've seen so far suggests that it is possible mm. That's awesome. That's really great news and, and fantastic to hear. And the, the last thing I want to kind of go into is now I think people are inundated with screen time and technology and stuff like that. And I've personally even found that when I stare at like my phone for too long, I feel like a, like a just a feeling of like burnout in my brain. What am I experiencing when that's happening? And what is your thoughts on how things like screen time and technology like impact on the brain and cognitive function. There's one really interesting thing about screens, particularly small like phone screens uh, in front of you that relates to how our vision sort of interacts with like fight or flight response. Mm. Uh, so when you're stressed or you know you think there's some kind of threat, you immediately focus in on it. It's a uh, what, what people call foveating. You like focus in, you have this hyper-focus on this thing and that's associated with a stress response. So you activate the sympathetic nervous system. You're like, there's a thing and I need to really focus on it because it might be important. I might need to run away or I might need to do something about it. So when you're singularly focused in on something like that for long periods of time, you're essentially activating some of those systems. Whereas conversely, if you're outside, there's no screen, you know, people talk about the benefits of forest bathing and walks outside and all these things. And one of the benefits of that, and there are some nice studies that have shown this, is that you're essentially changing your field of view such that it's much more broad. And this is what you do when you're sort of relaxed and you're just kind of like scanning the environment. And that is associated with downregulating the sympathetic nervous system. You're, you're entering more of that sort of parasympathetic, relaxed state. And so, again, the collecting this information is tricky but so we don't have like definitive proof that staring at a phone screen is is like chronically stressful but if we think about how our vision connects to how our physiology works it would make sense that you're essentially activating a, a stress type response long term because of how you're focusing in on something so deeply for so for such long periods of time and you know that's not saying that focusing on something is bad because if you're trying to learn a skill focus is important if you're trying to do deep work focus is important but it's this kind of you know right in front of you really focusing in for you know hours and hours at a time it does seem to be associated with sort of activation of those parts of the, of the nervous system so then counterbalancing that you know spending time with this sort of more peripheral wide view and obviously 
it's easiest to do the outside but you know even just like looking away and looking at sort of like a broader broader vista or landscape in some way is probably going to be beneficial for short at least for short periods of time so that's maybe one aspect of screen time that could be detrimental and again it's something that people are still learning about but more broadly if we think about what people do in front of their screens that's probably you know really important as well so if you're doing very cognitively stimulating work that's probably going to be beneficial to a degree there's um online brain training games like i mentioned things like brain hq which have been used in several clinical studies been associated with improved cognitive function you're doing these complex cognitive tasks and you're doing it through screens that's probably you know going to be a net benefit similarly there are studies of video games showing that as you do increasingly complex video games so if you compare solitaire to tetris to uh like super mario world 3d the more complex the video game the greater the benefits in terms of cognitive function and they usually look at things like working memory and executive function or response uh, inhibition with something like a, a go no go test so you can get significant cognitive stimulus and benefit from doing things that involve screens so i don't think the screens are definitely negative but in addition to this sort of like focus aspect the other part is if you're spending all your time in front of screens you're probably not spending time doing all the other things that we talked about social interaction physical activity you know maybe you're playing paying less attention to the food that you're eating maybe you're sleeping less so i think there's a balance of you know what are the benefits of the things that can happen in front of screens and i think there are a lot of beneficial things you know cognitive stimulus that comes from things associated with screens but are you doing that sort of to the detriment of other healthy behaviors and if you're not if there's a balance there then i think there's probably net benefit and screens aren't going anywhere so we can make them work to our advantage as long as we're also making you know we're interacting with other humans and we're going outside and going for a brisk walk and and doing all those other good things yeah i think a lot of things in life comes down to like how you your relationship with that thing, right? You can have healthy relationships with with a lot of things that are beneficial for you, but those same things can also create, you can also have unhealthy relationships with those things that can create chaos in your life. So, well, Tommy, this has been awesome. I learned so much. I'm so fascinated by your work and everything that you just shared on the episode. If people want to follow along with you on social media, if they want to check out some of your work, where's the best place to connect? messages so if you have any questions or anything like that feel free to reach out i also recently started a podcast with my colleague josh who's the neurologist i mentioned earlier it's called the better brain fitness podcast and it's a uh, it's purely question and answer so we have a place where you can either record like a an audio question or you can type in a question and then each episode we sort of take 15 20 minutes to answer those questions so if you have any questions about any things that i said today particularly around the brain then that's a great place to go because then I can answer that question for you, but then also maybe somebody else will benefit from that answer too. So check that out. I think that's been a lot of fun starting that up. Amazing. Well, I'll be sure to include the links to that stuff in the show notes. And for those listening, what I invite you to do is to share a takeaway. We talked about so much when it comes to the brain, brain health, cognitive decline, preventing that, and what you can do to improve cognition, improve your brain function. So whatever your takeaway was, make sure to tag Tommy and tag myself because we'd love to hear your feedback. We once again thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and we'll see you next time.